It seems so long ago now, and yet it was only August of last year, in the midst of one of the most tumultuous presidential elections in American history, that we co-hosted a revival for revolutionaries. It was unlike anything I'd ever participated in, because the entire event was online due to the pandemic, and yet it was no less powerful than an in-person revival. On the second night, all the preachers and musicians were black women who spoke from their unique position at the resistance of intersecting oppressions about the many issues facing our nation, systemic racism, economic disparity, the need for criminal justice and immigration reform, access to health care and education, the address of climate change, and so much more. When the revival was over, we stopped the broadcast and began offering gratitude to our speakers for what they had given that evening. And one of the organizers of the event, DeLeslin Rue George Warren, who is a member of the Catawba Nation, said to the women, as you spoke tonight, it became clear to me that your words were exactly what the land was thirsting for. So I thank you. I was stunned by his words because they came from a place so far outside my experience and understanding. I don't often find myself thinking about the land being hungry or thirsty. I rarely wonder about what the land might be thinking, let alone feeling. To be quite honest, I don't think very much about the land at all. I certainly don't imagine it to be personified with a story or emotions or needs or wants or desires or longings. In DeLeslin's words of gratitude, the implication that the land was thirsty rocked my world and shook my theology all the way down to its roots. Why don't I think more about the land and what it wants and needs, what it's thirsting and hungering for, what it's longing for? How did I become so disconnected and detached from the needs of the land that holds me every day as I walk and gives me life and fills my lungs with air from grass and trees and feeds me from its habitation and quenches my thirst from its rivers and cares for all of my needs? What a twisted relationship I have with the land. I rarely think about the land. I'm like an ungrateful child of a loving parent who is completely out of touch of the needs of the one who bore me and cares for me. The Buddhist monk Thich Nhat Hanh said, the world is not a problem to be solved. It is a living being to which we belong. The world is a part of our own self and we are a part of its suffering wholeness. And until we go to the root of our image of separateness, there can be no healing, he says. And the deepest part of our separateness from creation lies in our forgetfulness of its sacred nature, which is also our own sacred nature. Yes, our imagined separateness from the earth is our most destructive human delusion. It is fratricidal. It is suicidal. We are not separate from the land. In fact, we cannot separate ourselves from the land no matter how hard we try because the land and humanity are intricately woven together in an interdependent bond of mutuality. 
Have we not learned from the viral pandemic that what affects the earth impacts us all? The greedy, extractive, ungrateful, utilitarian relationship we have developed with the earth is not only killing the land and the plants and the animals, it is killing all of us. The climate that we've changed is killing humanity and pushing our species to the brink of extinction. In 2016, musician Alicia Keys released a song about the environment, an ode to our Mother Earth with this haunting title, Kill Your Mama. Shame on us, your sons and your daughters, she sings. Thieve all your gold and we poisoned all your waters. Every piece of our soul is for sale. Now they bought us. Think we know it all. Now look where it got us. Killing ourselves, falling down with the sickness. Money is the king, it's a dirty, bloody business. There will be no trial, but the child will always witness. If we're in love with hell, why the hell would heaven visit? Oh, mama, mama, she cries. Forgive us for your pain. Is there any saving us? We've become so dangerous. Is there any change in us, even for the sake of love? How are you going to kill your mama, she sings, when only mama is going to love you to the grave? How are you going to kill your mama? Her song provokes profound existential questions for us. Why are we killing our mother? Why are we killing our creator? Why are we killing creation? Why are we killing ourselves? Is there any saving us? Is there any change in us, even for the sake of love? De Leslin's attunement to the needs of the land and his acknowledgement of what the land is longing for made me think differently about a famous scripture in the Bible that is so often proof text by religious leaders. If my people, God proclaims in 2 Chronicles 7, 14, if my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sins, and I will heal their land. When this text is cited, the land is almost always seen as a metaphor for our nation, for America, for our society and our political system. But the Hebrew authors were talking about the physical earth, the dirt, the material soil, and the land itself that was in need of healing. In the biblical imagination, the people in the land are one. What happens to the people happens to the land, and what happens to the land happens to the people. If the land is healed, so are the people. The people are healed. So is the land. And yet, according to God, the people have a unique role to play in healing, which begins with humbling themselves, turning to seek God's face, and turning away from their wicked ways. God's invitation in Second Chronicles is nearly identical to words we hear from the prophet Joel. Hebrew scholar Will Gaffney reminds us that the prophet Joel was responding to an extreme ecological disaster in his own day and age, a plague of locusts. 
that exceeded their regular breeding and feeding cycles, which devastated the agriculture of Judah and decimated all of its crops. Joel, the prophet, specifically mentions the obliteration by the locusts of all the grain and barley fields, grape vineyards, as well as the orchards of olive, fig, apple, and pomegranate trees, which left the land and the animals and the people suffering from both starvation and thirst under a severe famine and drought and groaning in travail. In chapter 1, Joel describes this utterly hopeless situation in which a community of people who were already starving lost all the seeds for the next year's harvest and then were condemned to watch the starving animals in their community wander about desperately seeking a pasture that no longer exists. In response, the prophet Joel did not deny the crisis or become overwhelmed by the magnitude of it or imagine that there was nothing that could be done about it or abdicate responsibility for it or hope that some divine miracle was going to come out of nowhere and save everyone from it. No, instead, Joel testified about the crisis facing the people and the land. He warned everyone as Greta Thunberg and Hindu Amararu Ibrahim and Sunita Narain and so many other climate activists are warning us today that the ecological disaster that they are facing in the present was just a foretaste of the horror that was coming in the future on the terrible day of the Lord. If they did not change their ways, there would be a thunder of calamity in heaven and on earth, blood and fire, columns of smoke, the sun turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Who can endure it? Joel asked ominously. And as you can imagine, when the people heard Joel's warning, they cried out, What do we do, Joel? What do we do, God? This is the question that we always ask when we're faced with a crisis. What do we do about climate change, ecological disaster, and the possibility of human extinction? What do we do about systemic racism, white supremacy, injustice, and oppression? What do we do about poverty and housing insecurity, radical income inequality, savage capitalism, neoliberal ideology. What do we do about patriarchy, misogyny, homophobia, and transphobia? What do we do about police terrorism and immunity, the prison industrial complex and mass incarceration? What do we do about the humanitarian crisis on our border? What do we do about corrupt politicians and attacks on democratic institutions like voting? What do we do about greed and apathy, callous indifference to the needs of people and the longing of the land? What do we do? So often, this question of what do we do comes from a place of despair about the magnitude of the problems that we face. What do we do can be a deflection or an evasion of responsibility the problem is not that we don't know what to do. Our problem has never been a lack of knowledge. What we suffer from is a failure of nerve and a lack of will. In Joel's day, the ecological crisis was caused by a plague of locusts. But we now have to come to the humbling realization that in our day and age, 
We human beings, we have become the locusts. We are the species that plagues the earth. We are the ones who have justified ecological devastation and our own death as the price of progress, the price of our comfort, the price of our way of life, and the price of our commitment to capitalism. Yet Joel's remedy to the ecological crisis of his time is directly applicable to our own. Return to God, he said. Return with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your clothing, he said. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sanctify a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Assemble the elderly and the children, even infants that are breastfeeding, even the newlyweds on their wedding night. This is more important than sex and marriage and weddings and procreation. Everything is at stake, Joel says. Life is up for grabs between the narthex and the altar in the middle of the sanctuary. Gather all the priests together and all the ministers of the Lord and all the clergy and let them just weep. Weep. Let all the clergy and the people say, Spare us. Spare your people, O God. Do not make your heritage a mockery, a byword among the nations. Do not let us kill ourselves, God, through our own indifference. Why should it be said among the nations, Where is their God? In the Bible, and especially in the prophetic literature, the answer to the question What do we do is always the same. Return. This means that the first step toward the restoration of the earth and the healing of the land itself is the acknowledgement that we human beings have separated ourselves and distanced ourselves and divorced ourselves from our Creator and its creation. For thousands of years, theologians, philosophers, and anthropologists have created an unholy duality with hard lines of separation between what they call culture and nature, or humanity and the environment, or civilization and the wilderness. These false dichotomies and separations only exist in the human mind, yet they have had catastrophic implications for our world and the future of our species. To return to someone or something who we have intentionally separated ourselves from is not a matter of knowledge, but a matter of heart, of courage, of love, and of strength. Return with all your heart, Joel proclaimed. Rend your hearts and not your clothing, Joel said, because a heart that is broken open with love can contain the whole universe. Acknowledge your separation. Return to your creator. Return to your mother. Return to the land and to the earth. Return to the one who made you and bore you and raised you and fed you and who cares for you even now in the midst of your separation. Return to yourself. Tear open your hearts with love and return. Then and only then will the restoration and new creation of God begin again. What does it mean to return to our mothers, to return to ourselves? A few years ago when I was in the midst of a time of deep pain, heartache, and grief, 
as a result of a loss of a relationship that had come to a swift and sudden end. I needed a time to get away. And during that time, a family in our church was gracious enough to offer their cabin in Blowing Rock to me for a week in the fall when the leaves were changing colors. I almost didn't go because the pain was so sharp and I was worried that it would overtake me while I was there alone in the mountains with nothing but my thoughts and my pain and my heartache. But I went anyway. And while I was there, I spent hours and hours looking out over incredible mountain ranges that had existed there for generations, were traversed by millions of different people. And as I looked out at those mountains, I felt this extraordinary comfort. I realized later I was not comforting myself with the beauty of the purple and yellow and orange and red leaves or tricking myself somehow into thinking that my pain was insignificant in comparison with the grandeur and the age of those great ancient mountains. No, that's not what was happening. No, what was happening was that the earth was comforting me. The land itself was loving me and the mountains were healing me. A great spiritual leader once told me, the environmental crisis in our world will never end until human beings truly understand how much the earth loves them. Do you know how much the earth loves you? Do you know how much creation loves you? Do you know how the land holds you and feeds you and cares for you and provides for you, how its natural medicine heals you? What else could this be but love? If only we understood how much the earth loves us and wants to heal us. I was not surprised to find this very theme in an excellent book entitled Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants that was recommended to me by one of our artists and theologians in residence, Helms Gerald. The book by Robin Wall Kimmerer, a botanist from the Powhatomi First Nation, describes the phenomenon of species loneliness. We humans experience this species loneliness in our state of isolation and disconnection from the earth. Sometimes in our pain and grief, we think that God has abandoned us, when in reality, what we are feeling is the deep, unnamed sadness that stems from our estrangement from the rest of creation and the loss of that sacred and primordial relationship. Kimmerer teaches us that in some native languages, the term for plants translates to those who care for us. Therefore, she says, knowing that you love the earth changes you. It activates you to defend and protect and celebrate. But when you feel that the earth loves you in return, that feeling transforms the relationship from a one-way street into a sacred bond. Kimmerer also goes on to say, until we can grieve for our planet, we cannot love it because grieving is a sign of spiritual health and relationship. To love a place is not enough, she says. We must find ways to heal it. 
It's not enough to weep for our lost landscapes. We have to put our hands in the earth to make ourselves whole again. Even a wounded world, she says, is feeding us and holding us, giving us moments of wonder and joy. So we can choose joy over despair, not because our heads are in the sand, but because joy is what the earth gives us every day. And we can return that gift. Even in the midst of ecological devastation and the overwhelming despair of the people, Joel still had hope and still had joy because he believed God would restore the earth and the people who lived upon it. He prophesied that God would become jealous for the land that God created and have pity on the people, sending grain and wine and oil for their satisfaction. Do not fear, O soil. Be glad and rejoice, for God will do great things, Joel said. Do not fear, you animals of the field, for the pastures in the wilderness will be green and the tree will bear fruit and the fig tree and the vine will give their full yield. Rejoice in God and be glad for the rain and the abundance that makes the threshing floors full and the vats overflow with wine and oil. Not only would the land overflow with abundance, but Joel said the Spirit of God so deeply tied to the land itself would also overflow with abundance. As Joel proclaimed immediately afterward, then after I pour out grain and wine and oil, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and daughters shall prophesy and your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female slaves, I will pour out my spirit. The restoration of the land and the restoration of our spirits are bound up together and dependent on our loving return to Mother Earth. Author Joanna Macy writes, There is a song that wants to sing itself through us. We just have to be available. Maybe the song that is to be sung through us is the most beautiful requiem for an irreplaceable planet. Or maybe it's a song of joyous rebirth as we create a new culture that doesn't destroy its own world. But in any case, there's absolutely no excuse for making our passionate love for the world and the land dependent on what we think its degree of health is whether we think it's going to go on forever or not, we are alive in this moment so we can dial up the magic of that love at any time. Creation is groaning. Can you hear it? The land is hungering and thirsting for justice. Can you hear it? The earth is longing to love you and to heal you and longing for you to love and heal it in return. The land is longing for a sacred relationship with you. We don't have to be lonely anymore. We don't have to be cut off and separated, detached and distant and estranged from the earth. We are what the land is thirsting for. We are what the earth is longing for. We still have time, we still have hope, and we can still have joy. We can make the soil sing if we want to. 
All we have to do is tear open our hearts, stop killing our mother, and return to her with love. Amen.